Welcome to the DNVGL Talks Energy podcast series. Electrification, rise of renewables and new technologies supported by more data and IT systems are transforming the power system. Join us each week as we discuss these changes with guests from around the industry. Welcome to a new episode of DNVGL Talks Energy. My guest today is Dr. Kirk Bourne, Principal Data Scientist in the Strategic Innovation Group at Booth Allen Hamilton, former professor of astrophysics and computational science in the George Mason University, as well as former scientist and researcher at NASA. Welcome, Kirk. Thank you, Matthias. What we want to discuss today, Kirk, is the power of data and how big data is revealing new ways to drive energy efficiency and therefore reduce the impact of climate change. But before we do this, it would be great if you could introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your interesting career. Well, thank you. Uh, very glad to be here. Uh, as you mentioned, I'm working now with Booz Allen Hamilton, which is a technology and management consulting business. And uh, people think, what is that? <laughs> uh, so management consulting to me, especially in this modern data enriched world, is all about three things, D data to action. Okay, so taking data to get actionable insights and taking those actions. And so this actually matches up, uh, in my mind, uh, sort of in a continuum with my prior life as an astrophysics researcher, astrophysics professor, a research scientist. So, so people say that's a really big change going from that to management consulting. Uh, but it's not really for me. It's really all about data. So I worked uh, for 20 years in the NASA system with astronomy space data, space mission data, managing large data systems for scientists to use. I fell in love with uh, data because it was my day job <laughs> and my night job as an astrophysicist. And then I uh, moved from there to teaching data science at the university, as you mentioned. Uh, so I was a professor of astrophysics, but I never taught astrophysics. I taught data science. And I did that for 12 years. And then uh, this company called me up and asked me to be their principal data scientist which means I get to now uh, talk about the value of data and analytics across all kinds of different industries and different domains and uh, different, um, different applications. So you mentioned uh, your work in, in NASA and uh, the Hubble uh, Space Telescope or program uh, had, I think, hundreds or even thousands of research projects around it. Uh, among others, I read also uh, regarding climate change, not only on our planet, but also on, on others. <laughs> and uh, so this is actually the, the fantastic thing about data analyzing is giving us deep insights in very complex phenomena. So um, I would like to maybe draw on this climate change discussion, which is uh, very relevant at these days. So what can data actually tell us about climate change, what it will do to us when we get it wrong and how we can possibly mitigate it. Well, the, uh, the interesting thing about what you were just saying is, is the, the similarity between uh, like looking at climate uh, to my prior life studying the universe uh, and another analogy or, or another metaphor for that is, is the, the, like the human body. Uh, these are all complex systems. Uh, they have many moving parts, m you know, sort of many different uh, fields of study around each one of those things, right? There's many different ways people can look at how the thing operates, what are the, the causal factors for when you see things happen, and it's all about collecting data. And so in the, in the climate change sense, uh, we're collecting data from many different sensors. Uh, those sensors can be satellite images, they can be just uh, in situ uh, sensors in an environment, for example, maybe 
you know, people have, you know, weather sensors or they have moisture sensors in their soil or, or even just data that could be considered not normal data, like a report, a report talking about development in a given country. And so development uh, that is uh, changing how land is used. Uh, so basically, you know, removing some of the rainforest to develop that, those lands is changing sort of the dynamic of how the, the earth can process oxygen because we no longer have quite the same capacity for processing the carbon dioxide as the uh, rainforest, you know, gets switched out for, for <laughs> human development. And so all these different things, uh, whether they're reports or satellite images or, or, or sensors, are providing uh, input to our understanding of our world and hence ultimately predictive models. Predictive models will or will show us what is likely to happen if we continue doing things we do. But they also, but these models can also say if we tweak this or tweak that or change this or change that, we can see, oh, we, we can achieve a different or better outcome if we make some adjustments in the way we're doing things. And so that's the difference between predictive modeling and prescriptive modeling. And that is predictive. You just say, here's what's going to happen, people. <laughs> prescriptive says, here's what's going to happen if we change something. And so we try to achieve a better outcome and that's what prescriptive modeling is about. And so the only way you can achieve prescriptive modeling with any accuracy is if you have many, many different sources of information, many data points, many types of data. Like that is, you need to know what kinds of things will change the outcome. And so I like to use the analogy in this case with like the stock market. So you can invest in a stock and you can hope that it will go up or down, and then, depending upon whether you're shorting the stock or whatever you're doing. <laughs> so, so if you just looked at the time series of that stock alone, you could make some kind of prediction of its behavior, but it's only based upon the prior history of that stock, which can be very dangerous because if some conditions change in the world in some economic or social or political way, then that stock can go in some direction you didn't expect based upon its own unique time series. So what you need is all this additional information from all these other sources to say what are the conditions under which this thing will move in a certain direction and then try to understand those, not only those conditions themselves, but are, are some of those conditions things that you can have control over, that you can change. And that's definitely true in the climate sense. That is, are there conditions that will lead to outcomes we don't like? And are some of those conditions things that we have control over that we can change to achieve a better outcome? And again, it comes from having all these different types of sensor data, not just a single time series. So, so if all we had was the temperature of the Earth for the last 10,000 years, and we predict it's going up in the next century, that doesn't give us any information about what we can do to change it. But all these other sensors, uh, which we now call you know, the big data world. I hate to use that expression, but basically for me, when people say big data, I tell them it's not about the big or the data. <laughs> you know, it's about the insights you get from all these different sensors, all these different contextual ways of looking at a complex system. Actually, on that point about data and how we use it, and I tie that back to this example, climate change again, there's people with very different opinions about the impact of climate change. They base these opinions on some data. But that's a general problem. So how, from a data science point of view, do we ensure, first of all, that the data is correct, that we are looking at the correct data, and that we then arrive at the correct findings out of, these out of this data? Well, it, uh, it's a complex scientific process that's taking place here, uh, one of which is the actual collection of the data. Uh, and the next thing is uh, that we're tying this, these observations to our simulations of this complex system, right? So we build models of what the Earth will look like 10, 50, 100 years from now. 
right? So those simulations, those complex numerical high-performance computing models, by themselves produce a lot of data. I mean, the, just the output from these computer models, which we might just call synthetic data, the synthetic data is enormous in volume. So scientists are collecting those data. And so then we try to, com to combine the two, and that's called data assimilation. So assimilation is marry the actual observed data to the numerical model, and when you see that there's congruence, you know you're building the right model. When there's incongruence, you try to adjust your computer model to take into account this new data information that's, uh, that you have about the environment. And as you assimilate, that is the data becomes part of the process of improving the computer model, uh, then you achieve better and better uh, predictive modeling and, and, and also better prescriptive modeling that, you, that is you see what things can cause certain outcomes which things uh, can produce better or worse results and and again as I say if, if some of those are things that you have control over then we ought to take charge and do something about them and so there's a lot of political discussion around this and, and I, I as a data scientist prefer to take the objective scientific approach what does the data tell me to do and I'll let other people have the conversations in, in that other uh, realm of human discussion, which is less scientific. Uh, I'm not saying that's good or bad, it, but it's just not focused on the objective data processes, which I'm focused on. Talking about the power of data, and especially also that computational power has become so accessible and affordable, we hear visions about things people call artificial intelligence, decisions being made for us. But I wonder, what about things like human sense, instinct, judgment, or maybe even moral and ethical aspects? Yes, yeah, so this community that's working in data science and AI these days uh, is receiving a lot of attention uh, within their own discipline and out now from outside the world uh, uh, in general looking at what we're doing. And it's all around these sort of ethical and moral questions of what we're doing and how, how we're making judgments are we empowering machines to make judgments? Are we, how do we know the algorithms are not biased? We discover that they are biased. And so what most people in this field now like to say is it, AI is not really artificial intelligence because there's nothing artificial about it. Uh, we like to say it's like augmented intelligence or assisted intelligence, maybe amplified intelligence or actionable intelligence. So all these different ways of thinking about uh, how is it that we're using this information to be more intelligent? And so I, I like to think of this sort of the assisted intelligence as a, as a good sort of model or working model of how AI is changing now. And that is it's a human assisting a machine and a machine assisting a human. Uh, so one of the ways this happens is, is uh, something that humans are good at and machines are not so good at, and that's separating the noise from the signal. Uh, so, for example, today we're sitting in a car having this conversation in a, in a very pleasant little environment surrounded by birds and, and trees, but also surrounded by other cars and trucks. So if people hear the noise in the background, that's what they're hearing, right? So a human is good at picking that out and filtering that out, okay? So we can, you and I can have a conversation, and I cannot pay attention to the bird that's singing or the car that's driving by. But when the machine is analyzing the data, all that all that audio signal is part of the input to an algorithm. And the algorithm has to figure out how to sort out which part of that is the right part of the signal, which part of that is the noise. And so that's why you need assisted intelligence. That is, the human can assist the machine said, oh no, this is not part of the signal, that's part of the background noise. And so it, it makes it faster and easier for the machine to do its thing. 
And so AI being assisted intelligence, especially when we're looking at climate change where there's all kinds of moral and human judgments that are taking place, uh, we don't want to empower the machines in those ways, when, which we, we as humans have a hard time empowering, empowering ourselves to make all the right moral judgments. Uh, but we certainly can't uh, encode something into a machine if we don't know how to tell ourselves what is the right or wrong thing to do most of the time. Uh, so, it, so the assisted intelligence helps us to find the signal in the midst of all the, uh, the, the signals and sensors and noise that's coming at us. As you know, Kirk, we were at the Global Smart Energy Summit in Dubai, um, both of us, and I want to also look into that a little bit. Two major themes which we had here on the summit were the integration of large renewable energy systems as well as energy efficiency. And um, this is important topics for utilities and for large consumers for different reasons, regulations, incentives, being sustainable or just having a good business case. But how do you think data can help us to improve on the clean energy and energy consumption side and therefore also help us to reduce emissions. Well, I love the, uh, the title of this summit, uh, Smart Energy, because uh, I talk a lot about smart data. <laughs> and for me, smart data comes back to something I said earlier, which is when you have many different contextual pieces of information, you can make a smarter decision as a human. That it's basically being cognitive, that is, you're taking in all the information to make a better decision. So smart energy is not just about looking at usage and just, you know, sort of like challenging people to do better. It's giving people other pieces of information that will encourage them to do better. And so in the economics world, they call this the nudge, right? So the nudge is just the gentle motivation that you give someone uh, to do better, to make a, uh, a different decision, to maybe reduce energy uses, to be more efficient, to be more sustainable. And sometimes that nudge is as simple as just a simple number. Okay, so, so this happens uh, in my community. We receive a letter every month. Every family receives a letter every month. How, how is our energy usage this past month compared to the previous month? And then they compare us against our most energy efficient neighbors. So there's no names attached to this, but you just see where you rank with respect to your, your neighborhood. And there's an incentive. I want to do better next month. I want to get better than my, my neighbors next month. And so people are incentivized with this, through this little piece of information. It's just like a, num a single number, really. Actually, it's a, a sequence of numbers, but it's a, it's a very small amount of data. And that data itself is, in a sense, like smart data because it's my data compared to other people's data compared to the, the, the surrounding region's use of data, uh, energy. So this data provides information and insight and therefore motivation for people to be more efficient. So it's not just about the individual consumer but also about energy usage by large companies or energy uh, production or a policy within countries uh, looking at how uh, things can be improved uh, based upon the numbers and I think that's uh, you know, where, where we get to this place where we can talk about smart energy that is it's decisions based upon good knowledge and good insights from all these different sensors that are in the environment, that are in our systems, uh, and even in our homes as well as our businesses. So smart energy, um, when we look at this in future, that will more and more also mean that based on assisted intelligence, uh, we can run large complex systems like an electricity system for a city or a district to optimize on entire system level. Now, having said this, that clearly also means that the way we are organized today, industries are organized, might change. So what is your view on how will 
data, the insights we get from data change the way we are structured as a society, as an economy, or maybe even uh, move the centers of gravity of geopolitical powers? Well, these are big questions. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not uh, geopolitically <laughs> knowledgeable enough to answer those kind of questions per se. But from a data science perspective, again, I'd, I'd say that optimization, uh, which you mentioned, uh, is, is a statistical process and, and, and sort of the mathematical definition of optimization. And it's, again, based upon looking at data look, you know, and, and sort of the, the functional dependence on data, if you want to say it that way. That is what causes something to go up or down and then, uh, again, once you sort of learn sort of the causal factors for something to go up or down, then you ask yourself your question, what am I trying to make this outcome go up or down? Okay, energy usage, I want to go down. Sustainability, I want to go up. Efficiency, I want to go up. Okay, uh, you know, uh, blackouts, I want to reduce. So, so, so depending upon what you're looking at, you want it to go up or down. And so once you understand, well, what, what can I do to make it go in the direction that I want it to go, then that's about optimization, trying to achieve that, that best performance point, the performance point that you're trying to achieve. And again, this comes from data, looking at the data usage, maybe by time of day or by industry or, or region. And so if there's things that can be done to sort of move energy usage to more optimal times of day or more optimal times of week, or in more optical, optimal uh, locations in your region, for whatever reasons, you, you may have some you know, motivation to do that, uh, then you can, yeah, maybe there will be some change in sort of the way we operate as society, uh, the way that we uh, enable or encourage people to use public transportation, for example. All kinds of things we can start doing if we, if we start being more uh, objective about what, what are the things we're trying to optimize and what are the things that we can measure that tell us whether we're performing <laughs> in an optimal way or not. Uh, so it really comes down to sort of standard business practice, right? So first you say, what are your goals? <laughs> and, and how am I gonna measure? <laughs> uh, what can I measure to see if I'm achieving my goals? And then, then set about measuring those things. Kirk, unfortunately we are slowly coming to an end of this episode now already, but relating back and reflecting on what we've just discussed in the past 15, 20 minutes or so, what would you expect would be the bigger advancement in this part of the world? Well, the biggest advancement to me is, is, is the integration of um, the, all these data sources. Uh, so I, I like to talk in analogy, so I'll use another analogy for this question, and that is this uh, the f uh, famous cartoon of the blind men feeling the elephant. All right, so maybe you've seen this cartoon where, where there's like three or four blind men, they got blinders on, uh, they, they're, not, they're not seeing what they're looking at. One of them is feeling the leg of the elephant, one is feeling the tail, one is feeling the, the, the trunk of the elephant, the other is feeling the body of the elephant. And so they have a very completely different description of what this complex thing is that they're feeling, right? And so until they break down the silos of information, which most businesses and organizations deal with, until you take the blinders off and you can now integrate all these different sources of information about this complex system, you'll never really understand it and be able to deal with it in the right way. And so I think this integration of data from many different sources, it's breaking down the silos, sharing information across, you know, not just boundaries within, or within a single organization, but across organizations and across communities and even across countries maybe, 
uh, we're not going to really be able to get the best insights in how to manage this complex system, which we call Earth <laughs> or, or climate or whatever you want to call it. And so, it's, it, again, it's, 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 it's putting back that sort of humanized uh, piece of the work we're talking about here. We're talking about we are cognitively aware and seeing change in our world, and we know we need to do something about it. And instead of being frustrated as to knowing what to do, we, we now have enough sensor information that says, if you do this, you can improve that. Okay, <laughs> it goes back to that optimization discussion. Mm -hmm. If I know I can, if I can improve efficiency or reduce energy usage, if I want efficiency to go up and usage to go down, I can I can understand what things can I do to move those functions in those optimal directions. And again, it comes from data, and it comes from many different sources of data. So, so break down the silos, take the blinders off. Let's share data. Let's share information. Let's share insights, uh, so we can do. Uh, that other form of AI, which is actionable intelligence. <laughs> that is, we got intelligence enough information to take action, and I think that's the best AI there is. Very good. Thank you very much, Kirk, for this invaluable insights. And thank you very much also to the audience for tuning in. Um, that was Dr. Kirk Bourne, Principal Data Scientist in the Strategic Innovation Group at Booth Allen Hamilton, about the power of data and how big data is revealing new ways to drive energy efficiency and therefore reduce the impact of climate change. Thank you for listening to this DNVGL Talks Energy podcast. To hear more podcasts in the series, please visit dnvgl.com/talksenergy.